Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our text, the Gospel reading for the day, these words of Luke 9, as the time approached for him to be taken up onto heaven, Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because his face was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus rebuked them, and they went on to another village. This is our text, dear friends in Christ. It wasn't more than a month ago that nearly all of the major news networks reported the account of an American boy who became the youngest climber to reach the top of the tallest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. From the summit of Mount Everest, up there at 29,000-plus feet, 13-year-old Jordan Romero of Bear Lake, California, used a satellite phone to call his mother to say, Mom, I'm standing here on top of the world. And his mother says there were a lot of tears and a lot of I love yous, and then she concluded with, I just told him to get himself back home. And she assumed, of course, that the trip down Everest was going to be much easier than the trip up Everest had been. That's a wrong assumption. And that's a dangerous one. It wasn't so bad at all for this young man, 13-year-old Jordan Romero made it back down without too much difficulty, but before him there had been many others who had made the ascent up the mount but had a much harder time getting down it. And You take, for example, the case of a certain mountain climber who's also authored a book on the subject. His name is John Krakauer. And in his book, he could tell you all about his experience. He vividly described some of the things that he went to just getting to the base of the mountain at 17,000 feet. And he said that he had such a cough that his sides were aching so badly that it cracked his ribs and there were deep crevices that he had to avoid in the earth and there was bone biting wind and sunburn and lack of oxygen that he experienced sub-zero temperatures until finally and this was back in May of 1996, finally he reached the summit of the mountain and he stood there in the top and he didn't at all have the exhilaration at standing there that he thought that he would have. He had assumed wrongly and then he also had wrongly assumed that his descent down the mountain was going to be much easier than his ascent up it had been. And he was dead wrong. Proven to be so, by the mistakes that had plagued that whole tour group as they, or climbing group as they had gone up the mountain, now these mistakes took their toll as they descended the mountain. As with tired and worn bodies and minds, they began their ascent, a descent, a descent that took the lives of six of them, three of them being the guides. And all because they had totally run out of energy and it took their lives on the way down because of a mountain storm that they had not expected. Wrong assumptions often lead to deadly conclusions, whether it's way up there on the Himalayan mountain range or over there in the Mideast on that mountain range in Samaria that we learn about in our text for today where there are a couple of disciples that also made some very wrong assumptions. 
And that's where we find the disciples with Jesus in our text for today, in a small mountain range there in Samaria. What were they doing there? Why a mountain range? Because they were accompanying Jesus, the text says, who had set his face on a journey toward Jerusalem. And that took them through that mountain range. It's an interesting phrase where it says he set his face because it's a phrase that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, you can often see where that phrase is used, that it's used in a negative way, where it says he set his face, and usually it's speaking of God setting his face against some city. God setting his face against some people, against some region, as an act of judgment against them because of their defiant disobedience or their, their disregard or their disdain or their indifference toward God. And so he sets his face against them. That's how that phrase is very often used in the Old Testament as a negative, as against. And those like those Samaritans to which Jesus and John referred in today's text, you know, those Samaritans were like that. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Here was God in the flesh. And they wanted nothing to do with him. Don't make wrong assumptions about the Samaritans. It's not that the Samaritans didn't know who Jesus was. It's not that the Samaritans hadn't seen Jesus before. They had. Remember back sometime earlier that Jesus had visited with the Samaritan woman at the well? A woman that he told all about her sordid and her sinful past and how many lovers she had had and husbands she had had. Now she was with the fifth one, remember, and living with him. Jesus told her all about her sordid and her sinful past and present. And she was shocked, but he also told her that he was the living water, remember, that if she drank of him, she would have eternal life, forgiveness and eternal life, and she went running back into the city of Samaria called Sychar, and she told all of the people of the city, and they all believed, St. John tells us, because of her word. And then they, the city people themselves, went out to Jesus by the well and, and met him there and greeted him and welcomed him into their city. And then they believed on him, St. John tells us, because they themselves heard his own word. And for two days they celebrated the presence of Jesus there in their town. The Samaritans knew. They knew who Jesus was. And they knew what Jesus himself had come to do. So now why do they reject him? Why do they reject this one that had been with them as a celebrated presence? The one who, if once he had the keys to the city, they now had obviously changed the locks. What happened? Why the about face? Because of wrong assumptions. When they heard that Jesus was, as our text says, on his way to Jerusalem, they assumed that he was going there as a militaristic messiah type who was going to free Jerusalem from Roman rule, establish a kingdom, put Jerusalem on the map again, put it up on the top again, restore his former days of glory again. You'd think they'd be in favor of that. They weren't. Why? Because there was no love lost between the Samaritans and the Jews. None whatsoever. Why? Because the Samaritans believed that the center of worship was to be up on Mount Gerizim, 
whereas the Jews believed the center was in Jerusalem. And so if Jesus is setting his face toward Jerusalem, they would not in any way assist him or help him, lest they in some way elevate Jerusalem and Mount Zion above Mount Gerizim, where they believed the center of worship was to be. And thus, because they made wrong assumptions about Jesus, they set their faces against him, even as he was setting his face toward, in a positive way, toward Jerusalem. The one whom they had earlier acknowledged, St. John tells us, as the savior of the world, thus the Samaritans had said, is now rejected by those who had proclaimed him such. And how many people, friends, in our day, how many of our acquaintances and those even closer to us are doing the same thing? How many who once believed in Jesus now judge him to be irrelevant in their lives? How many who once thanked him at their home tables and spoke to him with head upon their pillows at the dark of night? How many of those who once heard him speak through his word proclaimed each Sunday morning and were nourished by his food, by his very body and blood at his holy table each week and have now and since turned their backs upon him and denounced him and want nothing more to do with him. Why? Because of so many dangerously wrong assumptions that they've made about him. Assumptions based not on his word, wherein he tells us what he has done and what he will do, not on his promises, but rather assumptions that are based on self-composed or society-composed caricatures of Christ, images fabricated by our own desires and our own fleshly wants and desires, our own assumptions of what we think the Christ should be and what God should be doing in our lives. Sinful assumptions. Sinful because even though Jesus indicates in today's gospel that those following him may well have to concede some of the comforts of the world, some of the securities of this world. That's why he says foxes, remember what he said? Foxes have holes, dens in which to sleep, birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Follow me. What does that imply? If it's not a separation from the comforts often and the securities of the world, And also, it may even mean, in following him, it may even mean disruption of family ties, as it meant for two other men that he cites as examples at the end of the gospel today, the one that wanted to bury his father, the other one who wanted to go back and say farewell to his family. And Jesus said that neither was fit for the kingdom because they put other things before him. Even though Jesus clearly and consistently indicates that the way of his followers is the way of cross-bearing in this world, not crown-wearing, but cross-bearing, we who by nature, as St. Paul says in today's epistle, would rather gratify the desires of our own flesh, is what Paul says, 
That's what we want our religion to be, something that will satisfy and gratify the desires of our own flesh. And then what does Jesus go, go on to, and, and, and that goes for Jesus too, isn't it? That so often people want that for Jesus, not only for themselves, but they want their Jesus to be one who is always wearing the crown, not a cross, the crown. And then when Jesus says no, no, the center of all that I have done is the cross of Calvary. When Jesus said, no, it's not the crown, it's the cross, then we not liking that because our caricature of Jesus is different, put a distance between ourselves and him just like the Samaritans did and we began, begin to, to fabricate our own Jesus, the caricature of our own sinful assumptions and imaginations and thereby we remake him in our own image and after our own likeness. Should we call fire down from heaven to destroy them all? All of those Samaritans who have done that, the disciples, James and John, asked. Now perhaps it sounds heartless, but it is just. Had God done that, it would have been just. And the reason that the disciples John and James say that is because they recall an event from the days of old, the days of Elijah, where the prophet Elijah did just that called down fire from heaven to destroy a whole troop of Samaritans that had rejected Jesus. And so they remember that. Notice what the reaction of Jesus is when his cousins, the sons of his mother's sister, of Mary's sister, they ask him if he should call down fire from heaven. Jesus, the text says, turned toward them and he rebuked them. There's no doubt that the Samaritans of whom they spoke and who rejected Jesus deserved to perish. None whatsoever. In fact, there was, as I said, that historical precedence that was there. No doubt that Jesus would have been perfectly justified in setting his face, face against Sychar and against that city, against Samaria, but he doesn't. He doesn't because there are those times too in the Old Testament as well as the New when God in his grace and when God in his mercy sets his face favorably toward a people. When God in his face sets his face mercifully toward a people, favorably toward undeserving sinners, a title that indeed fits us all. Favorably he sets his face toward sinners, mercifully as reflected in the Old Testament's oldest liturgical words of the church going all the way back, remember, to the time of Moses, those words that you're going to hear again at the end of today's service, where God says to you, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee, smile upon thee, show thee his favor, be gracious unto thee. God setting his face toward a people to smile upon them, with pleasure and in his grace rather than to frown upon them in his just judgment. Why does it happen that God would smile rather than frown upon a people? It happens only because of this Jesus, this rejected Jesus, rejected by the people of his childhood home, remember, in Nazareth, rejected by the Gentiles in Chorazin and Bethsaida, rejected by the residents of his 
Adult residency in Capernaum and Galilee rejected in our text by the Samaritans whose country he travels through, rejected ultimately by the citizens of the city of Jerusalem. This rejected Jesus now sets his face toward Jerusalem because Jerusalem is where he was destined by his father to become the greatest blessing that the world has ever received by bringing the blessings of his cross and the forgiveness of sins to all the world, becoming then a great curse for all of mankind. So here we have it right in our text, God now in the flesh setting his face toward Jerusalem, where he's going to endure divine judgment. And we sinners deserve that judgment, but he does it in our stead in order that we might receive the divine blessing that none of us deserves. The countdown's begun. The St. Luke puts it, and it came to pass, the days being fulfilled. You can just about hear the clock ticking. You get the sense of divine destiny that's here playing itself out. Jesus getting closer and closer to Jerusalem where everything must culminate, converge, and finally end up there on the cross of Calvary. Isn't that what the prophet Isaiah said some 700 plus years before Jesus made that ultimate journey to Jerusalem? He puts these words of holy resolve in the mouth of the coming Savior, Isaiah does, and he says these words, and they could well have been and must have been spoken at some point and quoted at some point by Jesus. Listen to them. I have not rebelled. I have not drawn back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockings and spitting. The Lord will help me, therefore. I have set my face like flint. And I know that I will not be put to shame. 700 plus years before Christ, those words were spoken of the Messiah who would come. Undoubtedly, our Lord Jesus spoke those words. And here is the picture on the bulletin cover today indicates. Here is Jesus with his face set like flint going to Jerusalem where he would act on your behalf and suffer for us the judgment that we deserved in order that we might have the face of his father smiling mercifully upon us. So no matter what your sin has been, no matter if we once rubbed shoulders with David and his adultery or can relate to Peter and his denial or to Thomas and his doubting and his unbelief or James and John and their quest for positions of power and their eagerness to abuse it or the Corinthians and their divisions and their drunkenness or the Cretans and their continual lying or the Galatians and their verbal backbiting and devouring of each other that we heard about in today's text or the Pharisees and their smug righteousness or the Sadducees and their deadly doctrines no matter what our sin has been, it's met its end in the pierced body and in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, the body and blood of Christ, too, St. Paul says in today's epistle, has set you free. It's a good word to think on this week as we prepare next Sunday to celebrate our civil freedoms. Christ has set you free. You were called to freedom, brothers. St. Paul says, only now don't use that freedom that you have in Christ as an opportunity for your flesh. Don't make the dangerously wrong assumption, a final assumption for today, 
Don't make the dangerously wrong assumption that freedom from the curse of sin that Christ has won for you now allows you to willfully engage in whatever sin might satisfy the desires of our flesh which still remains with us to the day we die. Liberty is not license. As is so evident in today's text, he who's freed us from sin by setting his face resolutely toward Jerusalem is the same one who says, follow me. And notice he doesn't ask, will you please follow me? He doesn't ask, will you please follow me, as though there may be some valid reason or excuse for delay or denial. There isn't. As is evident in the closing words of today's Gospels, no, he simply issues the word, follow me. And those who by grace know who he is, know what he's done for them, those who by grace know him as Lord and have his word operating within them and have been fitted by him for his kingdom will do so. They will simply do so without denial or delay. Sir Leonard Wood, a British major, general, and governor of the Philippines at the turn of the last century, he once visited the King of France, and the king was so pleased with the visit that he had with Sir Leonard Wood that he invited him back to dine with him the next day. And the next day came, and Sir Leonard Wood entered the palace. And the king, meeting him unexpectedly in a hallway, said to him, Why, Sir Leonard, I didn't expect to see you today. And surprised, Sir Leonard replied, But did not your majesty invite me to dine with you? And yes, replied the king, but I received no reply from you, so I assumed that you wouldn't be able to make it today. And then it was that Sir Leonard Wood uttered one of the choicest sentences in his life, and he said, your majesty, a king's invitation is never to be answered. It is only to be obeyed. And he was right. And if that's right for a mortal king, you can imagine it is most certainly right for the immortal king of all the universe. Though we undoubtedly falter along the way, his grace forgives us, and his love picks us up, and then his word empowers us to get it together and to follow him. And the King of Kings awaits no answer. He simply says, follow me. Follow me. And here's one thing of which you can be absolutely certain. His very word will enable us to do just that unto eternity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.